Hey, welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Um, today I'm going to be talking about tracheostomies, uh, and I'm not. It's not necessarily so. So I'm a. I'm not an ENT surgeon, right? So they're like the experts on tracheostomies, you know, like placing them and managing them and things like that. So I'm. I'm not going to be talking about that quite as much, but I, as a critical care ICU physician and intensivist, I do uh, manage patients with tracheostomies all the time. And I kind of want to share the difference, you know, and obviously just like in my podcast, this is not an exhaustive conversation. Um, I can't go over everything about tracheostomies, but I'm going to talk about what I think it's necessary for a lot of healthcare workers to know about tracheostomies and how to manage them, particularly under duress, under when a patient is in like respiratory distress and they have a trach and what to do about it. Um, tracheostomies are often very intimidating to people because, right, so for those that don't know, tracheostomy, what is it? It's a hole in the neck. And then a, a tube is placed there so pay, so someone can breathe, right? That's what a that's what a tracheostomy. And a stoma, I'll be using that word a lot. A stoma means mouth, I think, in Latin or something. Uh, it means the opening of the in the neck. That's that's a stoma. And then tracheostomy is the tube that goes in. It's different than an endotracheal tube, um, which goes through the mouth or through the nose and then goes down into the trachea. So this bypasses all that, and a whole, uh, someone comes along, usually an ENT surgeon, but not necessarily an ENT surgeon. And places a hole in someone's neck, and there's many reasons, many different reasons. So why don't I talk about the indications, why it's why, why they're placed, and then what to do about it, particularly in, in critical illness. So here we go. Okay, so first let's talk about why tracheostomies are placed. Um, so there's there's many different reasons, and I'm I, again this is not an exhaustive list. I will not be exhaustive. I'm just talking about the stuff off the top of my head. Um, so. Let's let's just start with like one of the most obvious reasons. So someone needs a tracheostomy if they no longer have a throat. Okay, so that's that's what a laryngectomy is. When an ENT, when someone has cancer of their throat, like their larynx, um, you know, usually like squamous cell carcinoma, and it's a high, usually highly associated with a smoking history, and they get cancer. Um, well, that cancer is going to kill them unless it's taken out. So they get an ENT surgeon. ENT surgeons, by the way, are amazing. I work with them like every day. They're awesome. They're some of my favorite surgeons to work with. Um, and the group I work with is particularly, particularly incredible. Um, the attendings and the, and the residents, just, just a great group of people. Anyway, uh, so, uh, ENT will come and relieve them of their cancer. And that's the form of a laryngectomy. Ectomy means to remove something, by the way, um, as a medical term, if you're not familiar, ectomy. So laryngectomy, larynx, ectomy, out, the larynx is out. So literally their, their larynx is excised from them, it's taken out of them. So that's their voice box. So something you can't talk anymore. Uh, well, you can, you just now need, there's different ways of having, talking prosthetically, usually by a tracheal esophageal puncture, but that's another, that's some uh, discussion for another time. So laryngectomy. Um, so I've covered these all the time. So that is, obviously you don't have a hole anymore to breathe through. So a new hole needs to be created. So that's, so you'll get a tracheostomy for that. And you breathe through that for the rest of your life after you've, after you've had, you've had a laryngectomy. Um, other reasons that an ENT will like place one, they'll do it as a precaution. Say they're having like doing a big operation in the mouth and the throat. They're not doing necessarily doing a laryngectomy, but there may be a lot of swelling. Like there's a, say someone has cancer of their, their mandible and that gets resected. Their ENTs do this huge surgery where they take out part of someone's mandible if there's a bunch of cancer there. And then they take their fibula bone, which is in your leg and they transfer it up. They graft it into your, as part of your jaw. I know it's crazy. It's a, it's a crazy surgery. Um, and then they'll do a tracheostomy as like a precaution. So they may still breathe they up top, um, but uh, there might be so much swelling and inflammation postoperatively that they, they'll put in a tracheostomy as a, as a precaution. So usually people like that, you know, they usually will not need their trach long term. So 
that's another thing. Tracheostomies aren't always needed long term. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. It just it, it just all depends. So there are surgical reasons to place uh, a tracheostomy. So another reason for tracheostomy is like respiratory failure. So someone in the ICU. So it's very common. Someone needs, and I, I'm talking about adult populations here, right? I'm not. I don't do pediatrics. So there's other reasons. Pediat, you know, tracheomalacia, and there's other you know congenital problems that 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 a neonatal or, you know, a child will be born with that they need tracheostomy. I'm not going to really talk about those things because it's not part of my practice at all. I don't do any pediatrics. Um, so, so adult population. So in the ICU, say someone is, and they're, they're, they're on a, they're on, they have a breathing tube. They've been critically ill for whatever reason. Maybe they've had cardiac surgery or maybe they're just in septic shock, whatever the reason is. Maybe they have, they're encephalopathic from their, from their end stage liver disease, whatever the reason is. Um, and they're, they have a breathing tube in place. And you try to take the breathing tube out and you even do take it out. You know, you, you feel like their vent settings are pretty minimal and they're waking up enough and you're like, okay, great. And then you extubate them. You take the breathing tube out and you're like, all right, let's see how they go. And then like six hours, eight hours later, 12 hours later, you have to put the breathing tube back in. They go back into respiratory failure. And so someone like that, you're like, oh, they need more time. But, you know, putting a, putting a tube in and taking it out is quite a process because you have to say someone you have to paralyze their body usually to put it in. That sets them back. And... Having someone awake with a breathing tube in their mouth for a long time can that can cause skin breakdown of their of their mouth and of their their vocal cords. It can cause vocal cords damage. So it's not a benign thing to have a breathing tube sitting in your mouth and laying across your vocal cords. So that type of patient, you just got sometimes you're like, hey, we got to trach him. We got to put him in tracheostomy. And and a lot of times for patients' families, it feels like one step. Uh, it feels like you're going in the wrong direction. And you're not you don't necessarily are. You're just meeting the patient where where they're at with their disease state. And it fit, it's, it's a tracheostomy is basically like one step back, two steps forward. It's because it's very invasive and you're like, oh, they're so dependent on event. And it's like they're already dependent on event. They're, they have a breathing tube in. So what this does, putting in a trach in something like this, it helps them to rehabilitate uh, faster. It helps them to because you, you can now take them off the vent. And and I'll talk about I'll talk about trach weaning. I should talk about that, too. Um, I'm probably going to forget, but <laughs> I'll, I'll see. Um so what was this? In? So you uh, you you put a trach in someone like that to help them to to rehabilitate. So once they have a tracheostomy in place, you can you can now wean their vent and then try taking them off the vent. And I'll just talk about it right now. So the the main process of venting uh, of weaning something off a ventilator is you you get their FiO two, their fraction of ox- the inspired oxygen, as low as possible. You know you try to get down to 50, 30 percent. And then you don't have them on as much support that you're, you know, positive pressure ventilation that they need. You try to get that on a, on a minimum. And then you try to, if they have a trach, then you try to liberate them. And we call that a trach collar trial, meaning you take them off the vent and you see how they go just on room air. <clears throat> and sometimes they only go like 10 minutes and you're like, okay, you put them back on. And then the next day you try for 30 minutes. And then sometimes they, then they'll go for hours, right? Um, they'll go for a couple hours and you're like, oh, they're doing well. And that's how putting a trach facilitates this process and then and then you even then you can even cap the trach um usually in the united states we call that a red cap why because we put a red cap over it a red cap you cannot breathe through to put a so a trach has a cuff just like an endotracheal tube so if you put if you put a a red cap over a trach you have to drop the cuff right because the cuff is how they breathe they breathe around the cuff if you have a cuff and a red cap on you're suffocating the patient you have to drop the cuff and put on a put on a cap you can also do a passimure valve, which is like a purple valve, uh, where, I, where, where I work in the United States anyway, which is a one-way valve, where when they breathe in, 
it opens up and then when they breathe out, it closes and it forces the air up and then they can talk because you, ha- you force air up. So you can't talk with a trach unless you have something like this or l- unless you have the cuff drop and you put like a finger over the, the tracheostomy. Then you force air up through the vocal cords and then you can talk. Because that's how you talk, right? <clears throat> you have to force air through the vocal cords and a tracheostomy will stop someone from talking. But if you have a speaking valve on, someone can talk with a trach. Um, so that's kind of the process of weaning someone off of a trach. And then you eventually, maybe you can switch out for a cuffless trach and then you just eventually decannulate, take out the trach and then they're fine. <clears throat> they have a hole in their neck that, that heals over. So that's how, how that kind of goes. Okay. So that's, so critical illness and respiratory distress. That's, that's another reason for having a tracheostomy. Um, an emergent tracheostomy can be placed when someone has, is in, is like about to go into cardiac arrest, hypoxic arrest because they're not breathing um, well enough. And uh, either an ENT or an anesthesiologist or a critical care or an or emergency physician doctor needs to put in an emergent, tra- either emergent tracheostomy or an emergent cricothyrotomy. <clears throat> so these are different, right? And a, and a tracheostomy is where someone comes along and in the trachea below the, the cricothyroid membrane, which is, this is all part of the same complex. <clears throat> if you're not familiar with the anatomy, it's not, you can look it up. It's not that big of a deal if you don't, for, for the listening purposes. An emergent tracheostomy is lower. You have a surgical incision with a scalpel, and then and then a hole is placed in the trachea. An emergent cricothyrotomy is placed per- percutaneously, and a tracheostomy can, place, can, can be placed percutaneously as well. That means through the skin, percutaneously. So an emergent cricothyrotomy is someone finds the cricothyroid membrane, which is between the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid th- cartilage. You place a needle. I've done this one time in my career. <clears throat> I hope I don't have to do it again, but I probably will. You take a needle fill, filled with saline, and you pop that in the trachea, you, while you're aspirating, as soon as you aspirate bubbles, you know you're inside the trachea, you take your syringe off, you thread a wire through that needle into the trachea, you take a knife and you make a slice along that wire to open up the path, and then the trachea, the tracheostomy or the, um, has a, um, a dilator within it, and you dilate, dilate down, take out the wire, take out the dilator, and now you have a tracheostomy in place. So that's, that's you do that emergently. Now you can do tracheostomies non-emergently can be can be placed with like an ENT surgeon under uh, where they they do a surgical incision and place a tracheostomy. They can also be placed percutaneously, like I've described with a needle um, through the skin. And that and percutaneous placement can be done by pulmonologists. They can be done by surgeons, uh, different types of surgeons, not just ENT. They can be done by intensivists like myself. I have I've never trained to do them. We don't intensivists don't do them at my institution, but there's plenty of institutions where, a, you know, a critical care intensivist, either a pulm critical care or an anesthesiologist has been trained to do percutaneous bedside tracheostomy placements. It's all institutional dependent. If my institution, if we just happen to do it, then I would learn to do it and I would do it, but we just don't do that at my institution. Um, we have either have ENT surgeons or thoracic surgeons or, or whatever surgeons or our pulmonologists will, who will place it. So it all, it's, it, it very much depends on the institution. So that's kind of reviewing basic reasons tracheostomies are placed. There's other reasons that I haven't touched on to, but I'll, I'll just move on. So um, so how do you get someone off? Did I already talk about Sorry, I, uh, I'm recording this later. <laughs> I forgot what I talked about. I don't remember if I talked about how to get someone off a trach. Let, let's talk about tracheostomy emergency. How to, how to, in a critical care setting, like that's kind of my intent of this whole episode. Let's talk about how to how to uh, handle a tracheostomy and what to, what to do about it. So when I come into a room, Let's say I don't know the patient, and this happens all the time, and they have a tracheostomy, and they're in respiratory distress. Okay, what are what is going through my mind? What do I do? How do I manage this tracheostomy? So I come in the room, and if you've listened to my podcast, you know what I do. I don't 
I try not to open my mouth unless I need to lead. Um, but I often have residents or fellows that are leading the code or whatever it is. And I allow them and I want them to do that. Um, so I don't say anything. I look, I use my senses to gather information to quickly understand what's going on. Um, if you do that, right, if you use your senses rather than talking when you come into an emergent room, you will, you will orient yourself way faster to the situation. Trust me, it, it works. Come in, look, look at the patient, look to see if they're vitals, and then listen to the patient's lungs, put your hands on the patient, and do all this without talking. Um, and you will learn a ton about what's going on. You'll learn the situation quickly. Um, so I come in and look at the patient and I say, and in my brain, I'm like, oh, they have a trach. Okay. And then I sit and then I, and then what are people doing with the trach? Are they like, <clears throat> are they bag, are they bagging through the trach? Um, you know, do they have a, like a, like a, an Ambu bag or a Jackson Reese bag? And, and, and are they helping assist the patient breathing? Is a, is a patient awake? Are they alert? Are they moving around? Are they not moving? Are they, do they look hypoxic? Meaning are, are their lips and skin blue? Do they have vitals? Are there, is their pulse ox super low? Is it high? What's going on? Right. And you can get all these things just by looking at the patient in about two seconds. You, you learn this information. So when I come in and I see someone with a trach, there's a couple things I want to know right off the top of my head that I think are very important in managing the trach. And one of them is how fresh is the stoma? How, how fresh, how uh, recently was this trach placed? Um, also, I want to see if the trach is in or out of the stoma. Because remember, the stoma means mouth. That's the opening at the neck. Um, sometimes it gets coughed out and it, or it came out. And that's why the patient's in restorative stress. So that's also another piece of information. If I look and I see a hole in their neck and there's not a trach there, um, then I'm like, okay, well, they, you know, maybe they need that, <laughs> obviously. Um, so I want to know how fresh it is. I want to know if they've had a laryngectomy, right? I talked about that earlier. I need to know that right away. Um, because, and oftentimes they should, most hospitals should, there should be a sign right above the patient's bed or at the head of the bed that says laryngectomy. This patient doesn't have a larynx or for whatever reason, like it's a warning sign because right. Most people have their larynxes. So the reason it's important is when someone's in respiratory distress and you're trying to manage their airway and say they don't have a trach and maybe their stoma is bleeding, um, and you can't put a trach back in or you can't put an endotracheal tube through that stomach, you can also intubate from above, right? Of course you can. Uh, and sometimes people forget that. I for, not forget that, but some people don't think about it because they get so focused on that trach and the stoma and restoring the tracheostomy to that stoma. They're so focused on that that like, hey, if we're really in trouble here and this patient's about to code or is coding, just open the mouth and put a breathing tube from above with, you know, with, you know by laryngoscopy. But you can't do that if someone has a laryngectomy, right? You cannot put a breathing tube from above. It's all sewn shut. It's a blind pouch up there. Uh, and if you try, if you attempt to do it, you could kill the patient. I've heard about it happening. I haven't been a part of it uh, myself, but I've heard of it happening. So uh, uh, someone putting, trying to put an airway uh, tube from above, putting a laryngoscopy, uh, and the patient dies as a uh, result of this. It's probably because you, you get into those tissues with your blade, you break up the tissues, and you probably get into some vessels and bleeding. And maybe those, and then you cause bleeding that probably gets down into the lungs, cause hypoxia. There's probably many ways someone can die from this. But that's extremely dangerous, right? Nobody should ever, ever, ever be doing that. So you need to know if someone has, has had a laryngectomy, right? And then if they've had a laryngectomy, and when a code is called or a rapid response, we call it in the United States, which is not quite a code. So also, but also code blue in the United States means like cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest. Someone is, does not have a pulse. That's what we call it in the United States, code blue. I know it's, that's not what it is elsewhere, but it's a cardiac arrest. 
it's called the code blue. A rapid response is where you get a you get a, a team in there to quickly to try to reverse a patient that is deteriorating. They're not they're not pulseless, but they're deteriorating. That's that's usually typically in, in across the United States. It's not just like it's not just my institution. It's usually called a rapid response. Um, anyway, so uh, what was my point? So if you I forgot what I was talking about. <clears throat> um, I lost my train of thought. Okay, I, I got. It. I had to go back and listen. Um, when a code is when a code blue is called, there's a lot of people that come in the room that do not know the patient, right? So I've come into a room and, um, and so they don't know it, and they start doing their thing, right? Which is fine. That's what they're trained to do. Um, but I've seen you know someone trying to uh, a patient with a laryngectomy uh, trying to be bagged from the from the from their mouth, right? Uh, like trying to pump air through the lungs from their mouth and they have a laryngectomy. So you're, that's not, that's not harming the patient. Well, maybe it's harming the patient. It's not, it's not helping the patient because you, so you need to bring that to the stoma, right? That's the only way they're breathing. If they have a laryngectomy, it's the only way they're breathing is through that stoma at their neck. So you got to bring that. If they've had a laryngectomy, do not try to do anything in their mouth. Um, that's, that's yeah. So anyway, so I want to know how fresh is the stoma. I obviously want to know if they've had a laryngectomy. And then, and then inspecting it, what is, what is the uh, origin? What is the ideology of this uh, respiratory distress? Are they bleeding? Is that stoma bleeding? That's a big deal. So if I look at that stoma and there's blood around it and, they've, and they no longer have a trach in it, now you're, you're having problems. And the next thing that's usually out of my mouth is we need a fiber optic camera in this room right now. It's usually the next thing out of my mouth. And we also need ENT in this room, right? Because typically it's an, it's an ENT patient, um, but not always. And so ENT, you know, I want ENT, in, uh, you, you know, usually a resident because I work at an academic center. I, I want ENT in the room as well um, to come and help manage those. So what's the, they're probably on their way. Oftentimes they're already on their way or they're already in the room when I'm there. Um, so, yeah, is there bleeding? Uh, where's the trach? How fresh is the stoma? And have they had a laryngectomy? Those are the things immediately that I, I want to know um, right away when I'm managing a patient with a trach and respiratory distress. Now, one of the things in this situation, let's say someone is having bleeding around their trach and they're hypoxic and they're not doing well. One of the things that's tempting to do, but it can be very, very dangerous is, and, and say their trach, they coughed it out, they don't have a trach and you're trying to get control of it. One of the things that's very dangerous to do is to blindly shove that trach back in. So for one thing, if someone's hypoxic and hypercarbic, like they're not ventilating well and they're hypoxic, uh, they're also extremely agitated. So, so one of the lesser known side effects of hypercarbia, which is you know, too much carbon dioxide when you're not ventilating. Yes, it's it's a narcotic, meaning it co- not necessarily a, like a narcotic like in the traditional sense, but it causes narcosis. Hypercarbia causes narcosis, right? It sedates people. But it also, once it gets really severe, it can cause severe agitation. Like people can be absolutely wild when they're uh, uh, hypercarbic, have extreme hypercarbia. I see it all the time. And it gets forgotten often. I, people are like, well, it can't be hypercarbia because they're not sedated. They're like, no, 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 no. They can be, this is, uh, agitation is a, a huge sign of hypercarbia. So what my point is, someone who, you know, they cough out their trach and they have bleeding around their trach, uh, they are, they're often, they can be thrashing in the bed. And to take that trach and to shove it back in to a bloody stoma that's immature, that's new, is dangerous. Because you can put it into a false lumen, meaning you can shove it into some tissue and not into the actual trachea. And then you start bagging and you start, you're bagging tissue, you know, you're, you're, you're ventilating tissue. You're causing a bunch of crepitus, probably swelling around that trachea and you're also not ventilating them. And now you're on the way on, they're on the way to dying, uh, uh, rapidly. So one of the, 
things that is very dangerous, it's tempting to do in the situation is to blindly shove a trach back in. Do not do that. Um, that is not a good idea to do. So that's why you need a fiber optic, a camera. So in this situation, I would only, I, there's a couple things I could, I could do in this situation. Let's say it's bleeding and they're having trouble and you got to put it back in. Um, now, of course, again, you can also just like sedate them and intubate them from above, assuming they haven't had an allergy. That is always an option. You can always do that. Um, that's usually something you can do. Uh, another thing you can do it. So if you, you can take a fiber optic camera and load your tracheostomy over that, okay, load it over it, and then put your fiber optic camera down the stoma. Make sure you see the carina, which is the or tracheal rings, and then you slide your tracheostomy off of that fiber optic camera and into the, the stoma. And now you know you're in the, the true lumen, the true, the, the trachea. And then you're good to go. And then you can start ventilating through that. Sometimes you need to give a little ketamine. You can give them some sedation, like some boluses of ketamine is fine. It doesn't cause respiratory depression. Rumi Maslam would probably be a good, a good example to settle them down. Now, if things are really going wrong and you have a fiber optic, you can't really do this. If they're about to code and they're so hypoxic, so if you really, really need to do, if I need to do something very in a quick pinch, you just take like a 6-0 endotracheal tube and just pop it in. Now, yeah, you also might be into a false lumen, but it's a little more flexible. It's not as rigid as like a shyly endotracheal tube um, or a styleted Bavona uh, um, tracheostomy. Those are different types of tracheostomies in the United States. Shyly is more rigid. A Bavona is more flexible, but it has to have an obturator. Anyway, you don't need to worry about that. Um, you can just take a like a 6-0 endotracheal tube and pop it in and see if you can ventilate through that if you really are in a pinch or just intubate from above if you can. Um, now, if you put a, if you pop in an endotracheal tube, it's easier to place, right? It's flexible. It's way easier to put in than a trachea, particularly if they're also like thrashing the bed. You can just pop in the tip. Do not advance it too far. It's so easy to main stem intubation, intubate uh, when you do it this way because, right, a stoma is lower in the neck. So if you put an endotracheal tube, which is a long thing, it's supposed to be go, go through the mouth, that's long. And if you, if you advance that, it's so easy to advance that too far. But trust me, it's extremely easy to do that. So when I put it in, I just pop it in barely in there. I inflate the cuff and I see the, I can see the balloon inflate and I leave it there. And then you must listen for bilateral breast sounds. Make sure you haven't main stemmed. Main stem is where you put the endotracheal tube too far down one of the lungs, right? Like down to usually the right side, you put it down too far and then you're not ventilating the other lung. So it's very easy to do that. If you, if you try this technique. Okay, so and then so I'll share a story about managing. Um, so I had a patient. I there it was a rapid response. I didn't know this patient. I came into the room, and um, <clears throat> and it was a patient who clearly you know using my eyeballs. I looked at the patient. They were clearly in respiratory distress, and they had a they had a stoma, and the tracheostomy had been coughed out or something. Okay, and they were clearly in respiratory distress. They were their pulse ox was okay. They were probably standing in the high eighties, and they were they were had significant worker breathing. The patient was awake. They were not. They were not about to code or anything like that, but this clearly like, you know, it's kind of an emergent situation. We must control this airway and, and help to ventilate her and, um, you know, and, and rescue her from the situation. So they were, I noticed that they were bagging the people in the room. They were, uh, had a, they were providing oxygen through the patient's mouth. And I asked, uh, you know, I, and I listened to the patient's lungs and they had bilateral breast sounds and they were breathing spontaneously as well. And, you know, I was like, this patient had a, has this patient had a laryngectomy? And no one really knew. I didn't really get any answers. And then finally, after a minute, someone was like, yes, they've had a laryngectomy. And I was like, okay, we need to bring the oxygen delivery down to the stoma at the neck. Um, so we did that. And then I looked at the stoma, right? And it was, it was clearly fresh. Just to my eye, it had been 
it had been created uh, fresh, like recently, right? It wasn't a mature stoma. It didn't have a bunch of a nice healed tissue around the stoma. It was it was raw and fresh looking, and it was also a little bl bl bloody. It wasn't acute hemorrhaging, but there was clearly like bleeding going around. Uh, around. So this is the situation I was describing, and I was like, I'm not going to put this. I'm not going to just take this endotracheal tube and shove it back in, because I'm going to make matters much worse. And um, so I was like, we need a fiber optic in this room. And, you know, the patient was kind of, and obviously I can't intubate from above. And I was like, yes, I can always put in a 6-0 endotracheal tube if I need to in a pinch. But I was like, he's kind of okay. Let's wait for the fiber optic. And it, it, it was far away, right? This was not during the ICU. So I was like, you know what? So I had this, this choice, right? I could, I could either try to blindly kind of fix his airway and call potentially, potentially cause worse damage by, by putting into a false lumen and actually making things way worse for him and causing bleeding and then making the situation way worse. So rather than do that, I, we elected that less is more. We're like, okay, let's wrap this. Let's wrap him up as he is. He's breathing spontaneous. We're delivering a little oxygen around the stomach and let's take him to the ICU where we can then properly address his airway. He's stable in this condition. He's not doing well, but he's stable. So we all, everybody agreed that that was an okay plan. And then unfortunately, as we were uh, kind of gathering him together and getting him to go, an ENT resident came and she had a handheld fiber optic um, camera. And so she was, she now with this new equipment and the situation changed, she then secured the patient's airway with a, a tracheostomy with a fiber optic camera. The patient was fine, went to the ICU anyway. So in this situation, I'm just sharing the story because less was more here. Um, and waiting for the proper proper equipment to not make things worse. Very, very important. Um, lastly, the there, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, but the, the, the last thing I want to talk about is how much pressure you put into a trach. Okay, so, so a tracheostomy has a balloon, right? That's how you create a seal. So a tracheostomy is just a tube. I should have explained this at the beginning if you don't know what a tracheostomy is. It's, it's, it's just a tube. Just imagine a tube that's curved, and it has a balloon on the outside of it that inflates. Um, while still maintaining the patency or the opening of that tube. And that balloon, you inflate it, and it creates a seal around the trachea, around uh, uh, the trachea, around the tracheostomy tube, so that air doesn't leak past it, so you can ventilate somebody. So it creates a seal. It is extremely important to not put too much pressure into that balloon. And it's a very easy thing to do, to put too much pressure into that balloon. So the trachea has a blood supply, right? By It's supplied by the arteries blood there's blood supply to those tissues to make it to make sure that those tissues are nice and healthy and they have good blood supply if you have pressure greater than 25 centimeters of water you now start and you apply that pressure in a in a balloon like a in an endotracheal tube or a tracheostomy tube you are now cutting off blood supply to the that portion of the trachea around 25 centimeters of water you now block off blood supply it stops being well perfused around that around 25 centimeters of water which is not a lot of pressure so it's very very easy if you come along and just put like say it's just like an endotracheal tube and you just put 10 cc's in it you are very likely have overinflated that balloon very likely with just 10 cc's particularly if it's like a small person or it's a woman who, who tend to be smaller you you probably have put like 50 60 easily 70 centimeters of water in that in that balloon just by just by putting ten, blindly putting 10 cc's in which is very common this happens all the time now if you it, so context matters so if you if someone puts 10 cc's in a balloon during a, like an anesthetic procedure right two hour procedure and so for two hours they have like 60 centimeters of water and the blood supply to the trachea is a little compromised uh is that going to make a difference very likely not it will not nope 
probably won't. They're going to be fine. They might have too much of a sore throat. If you had put less in, they may not, that patient might not have a sore throat. So that, so I'm not saying it's not, it's benign, but, but you do that over an hour, two hours, maybe even five hours with a little bit too much pressure. It's it's not, it's probably not going to cause any problems. I don't think at least I could be wrong about that, but I don't think it's going to cause any long-term problems for that patient. Let's compare this to someone with a tracheostomy in the ICU. Okay. Let's say that person has a tracheostomy and someone puts in too much air into that balloon and now they have 50, 67, remember 25 is where it should be at. And it has 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 centimeters of water. That's way too much pressure in that balloon. Now, you can measure pressure, right? There's manometers, um, uh, pilot balloon manometers. You can stick on there, and you can measure how much pressure is in these balloons. These exist. This device exists. You can you can precisely measure how much. And I think it's standard of care. I think we should. But anyway, let's say someone has a tracheostomy, and they have 70 centimeters of water in that tracheostomy in the ICU, and they sit like that for a week and, and then two weeks with that much pressure in the balloon. And that portion of their trachea is being underperfused. Now you may be creating a life-threatening problem. Why? So you're weak. So if that portion of the trachea is is uh, doesn't have good blood supply, it's now getting weak, right? It's scarring, it's damage, it's getting weaker. Well, the innominate artery, which is a major artery that comes off of the aorta, right? High pressure artery runs right by the trachea. So what can happen is as that as the trachea tissue starts to get become degraded and weakened, it can start to form a tunnel to that aort to the to that artery. And then you get what we call a tracheoanominate fistula. And that is as bad as it sounds. It then opens up and then you have you now have high pressurized arterial blood flow coming into the trachea. Uh, which is not very survivable, right? People most usually die. You need to have, you need to, if this happens, it needs to be, you recognize it. Someone needs to put their finger in that hole and then emergently go down to the operating room for a cardiac surgeon to open their chest and then correct that defect, which is very unlikely. So here's my point. A lot of pressure over, over, you multiply that over days and days and weeks. You have, you have breakdown of those tissues and then you get a tracheotomy fistula and the patient can die. That's that's the danger. So so uh, you know a dutiful RT respiratory therapist should be checking trach pressures every day, right, in the ICU to make sure that those pressures are not too high, that you're not forming tracheotomy fistula, a catastrophic event. This is a catastrophic event where someone can die. Okay. Anyway, that's all I'm going to share about tracheostomies. Um, so there's a lot to say. Email me with more uh, questions um, about that at icudoctorecmo at gmail.com. Um, I think I have a good question that I got from an email. Let me check it out, and I'll talk about it. All right, this email is from uh, Jack, last name withheld. Jack says, hey, Doc, love your podcast. One thing I was wondering, listening to you, is what you did during your undergraduate education before you got into medical school. Right now, I am a pre-med student, and I have been listening to you talk about what you do, but I'm feeling kind of lost as a pre-med student, and we're wondering if you had any thoughts about how to focus your attention and time. So, Jack, it's an awesome question. Um, so I'll, uh, really great. Um, so I'll just try to answer this briefly. Um, so the first part of the question is, uh, I was wondering what you did during your undergraduate education before you got, before you got into medical school. So in my undergrad, I, uh, I studied chemistry and I, that's what I majored in. Um, I always wanted to be a writer. I've talked about this before in med school, but I realized that was not like a, you know, very, I don't know, feasible thing to go into. And, uh, you know, just like Jack, I, I uh, who wrote the email, I, I can understand being um, feeling like, you know, like kind of aimless, like, oh, I guess I'll be pre-med, I don't know. 
And I think it's that kind of uncertainty with what you want to do with your future, what you want to go into. Is sometimes you just need to sit with that. And there's not much you can you can do about those feelings of uncertainty. Um, my I don't know. My first bit of advice is, it, you know, if you are blessed and fortunate to be in college and be in that opportunity to begin with and, you know, get a degree in something and be educated, it whether you go to medical school or you go do something else, it your career, I, unfortunately, we live in a society where a career defines what we do, and I don't think it should. So I think lower the stakes. The stakes, I mean, that's easy for me to say, I guess. Uh, you know, the stakes are sometimes quite high, right, in terms of, like, earning potential and things like that if someone has a bunch of student loans or, or whatever. But I don't know. I think lowering the stakes and, and going easy on yourself and that everybody, every young person in their 20s has this vision of what their life's going to become. It will be different than what you envision. It will probably, you'll probably go down different paths, and I think just embracing that uncertainty, that chaos is really important, I think, for your current mental health. For me, anyway, undergrad, I I consider going into chemistry, but, you know, going, getting a PhD in chemistry and going that route. But but I really, I, I really didn't want to do bench work and science. Like, I wanted to you know, be with people. And so medicine was a, a nice marriage of these two things, right? And But I had plenty of discouraging moments. So, you know, I tried to get into med school. The first time I tried to get in, I did not get in, right? I uh, applied to a bunch of schools, and I took the MCAT. I got eh, a very, very average score on that. Um, I had good grades. Um, I was obsessed with my grades and always, you know, trying to get good grades. So I did have good grades. Um, but uh, my first year of trying to get into med school, I did not get in. I got one interview, and I did not get into that school. And it was very discouraging, you know, getting that rejection letter from that one school. I was like, oh, you know, it's terrible. It's terrible. But, uh, you know, I got, got over that pretty quick. And I was like, I'll give it one more shot. I'll try. I'll try one more year. And that last year of my, um, you know, undergrad was one of the hardest academic years of my entire life, uh, because I I retook the MCAT. I got a better score. Um, my parents helped pay for a, a course to help me get a better score, on the MCAT. Um, right. So I had those resources. Uh, you know, parents that were very encouraging and very supportive, and they supported me financially. Not that my, you know, I didn't grow up. I grew up very middle class, um, but uh, my parents, you know, had had at least enough disposable income to help me with my education. Um, but anyway, so I tried, and I was like, "Hey, if I don't get in, that's fine. I'll go. I'll, I'll do chemistry." And I, I I got lucky. Luck has a lot to do with it, and got into med school. But I don't know for you know for Jack and other people in his your current circumstances. I, I would say just I don't know. Um, I, I you know I'm with you. I've been through it before. It's difficult. Don't be so hard on yourself. Accept that the future that you envision for yourself will very, very likely be different as it results. Um, And I think the most important thing is um, doing what makes you happy, um, that you feel like you are yourself and you're not being someone that you don't want to be. I don't know. Maybe that sounds a little contrived, but that's kind of how I feel. And if it's not, if you're not feeling it, if it's not something you want to go into, just don't do it. Go into Go into something else. Go into something else. I mean, uh, I, I have enjoyed my career in medicine, but not everybody does, right? I think it's been great for me, but not, ev- not everybody does. Um, and it's a long road ahead of you uh, if you do uh, go into medical school. Very, very long road. Um, so anyway, I hope that helps Jack and others like him. All right, let's go on. Let's talk about a book. Um, I So I read a lot of economic books. Um, 
and I have never formally studied economics. I don't claim to be like super knowledgeable about economics, although maybe I sometimes do because I make TikTok videos about economics and that ruffles some feathers. Um, but it, but but whatever. I, I read lots of economic book, books, and uh, the reason is it's not it's not like finance. Like I don't care about finances. I'm not like it's not it's not to understand how to make money. That's not my interest in economics. My interest in economics is is I'm interested in learning how power works. Um, and I, I'm fascinated by power, how it works, political power, economic power. So I'm obsessed, obsessed with reading about economics. Um, so I'm going to talk about an economics book. It's one of the best economics books I've ever read. And it's called The Value of Everything by Mariana Mazzucato, M-A-Z-Z-U-C-A-T-O. Um, it was published in 2018. It's about 380 pages. So I've read, as I said, I've read at, at least over 50 economics books. And this, The Value of Everything, the name of the book, The Value of Everything, Who Makes and Who Takes from the Real Economy. The author takes you, like, first, it's kind of a history of economics, of how value was defined and how it has become deranged today into this enormous financialized rent-seeking behemoth that siphons off wealth. <laughs> the, this is, the book is a balanced book. It's mostly apolitical. It's written by a PhD in economics. And it's not a polemic. It's a well-thought, well-researched critique about the current economic system. Um, the author gives us a nice overlay of the transformation of the word value, what it meant, what it means, and how its definition has changed over time with huge impact. The TLDR, right, too long, don't read version of what I'm about to tell you, is that value has been redefined from things that produce into things that don't produce, um, as long as they are private entities, right? So that value has been redefined, and I'll get into it. So what this means is broad financialization that has occurred since the 1980s has suddenly been deemed to add value, except that it only increases shareholder value. And then there's this other prevailing wisdom that anything that the government does does not produce value, even though the government provides tremendous value to its citizens, unequivocally. It's this broad redefining of value that has created an enormous rent-seeking apparatus that results in mass wage stagnation and wealth concentration. So the author starts at the beginning of this book with classical economics, and she does a really good job with an overview of Adam Smith and Ricardo and Karl, Karl Marx and their contributions to what is considered to be valuable or not. Adam Smith helped develop a lot of labor value theory. He believed growth depended on increasing the share of manufacturing and wage laborers, and free trade was essential to bring this about. Enemies of growth, according to Adam Smith, were the protectionist policies of mercantilism, as well as guilds protecting artisan privilege and the nobility who squandered its money on consumption and unproductive labor, right? That's Adam Smith. He believed that hoarding cash prevents nations from spreading wealth. Smith's theories were basically against mercantilism and for more free trade, right? Mercantilism was like guild mentality. And so he's all about free trade without tariffs and without rent seeking. Smith's free trade principles traced value to labor and not to gold. Ricardo was all about how the distribution of wealth was created from labor, and he also opposed, he was opposed to rent-seeking constructions. And then Karl Marx understood that labor power is what allowed surplus to even happen to begin with, which is then exploited by capitalists. Karl Marx understood the ingenuity of capitalists who organized workers to create surplus value, and Karl Marx foresaw the deleterious effects of mechanization and financialization and how it undermines workers. 
that's that's what I enjoy about Marx's text. Not that not that I think Marxism is like a viable economic model. I don't think it is. But his critiques about capitalism are very spot on. Um, anyway, she she talks about how there's basically four types of capitalists. There's the production bearing capitalists, commercial bearing, interest bearing, and then land owners. So anyway, so after the classical economic movement, you have neoclassical economists who overturned the labor value theory. A new theory was developed that dictated that a price is set by the value the buyer gives it and not derived from the labor that created it. This is key. This is the main point. You flash forward today, and this is the exact same rationale greedy drug makers will make when they're talking about why their medication costs tens of thousands of dollars. They argue the price is high because of the value it brings. The value is the price, even though the cost and labor to produce are way smaller than the price. This is called marginal utility theory, and it's part of neoclassical economics. Marginal value theory creates hyper-individualistic economic theory and hypercharges the consumer. It was the shift from classical thinking that saw rent-seeking as parasitic into neoclassical view that saw rent-seeking as something that added value to the economy. Now in the modern economy, we count financial products and rent-seeking as part of the GDP and consider it to be of productive value. The difference between profits and rent is obscured and it's all taken as being productive. Finance made a huge shift in the 1980s into being um, into being like an alley, a value-adding entity, but all it did was extract wealth and inflict wage stagnation. From leverage buyout to stock buybacks and junk bonds, and shadow banking and transaction costs, the majority of Wall Street is an enormous rent-seeking apparatus. Um, it's been the transition from stakeholder to shareholder um, value that has created this paradigm shift, right? Stakeholder value is considering all the stakeholders in a company, including the community and the people that work for it, and it's shifted to shareholder. Like, all you care about is the shareholders. There are only short-term profits now, right? That's all anybody cares about that's in charge. After the author explains all this in great detail, she then goes on to expound on all the ways the government adds value, either by Keynesian economic policies or just straight-up direct investment and production of key technologies. The government helped fund or directly, the U.S. government, helped fund or directly created many technologies we use today and that private companies exploit, like semiconductors, touchscreen technology, the Internet, GPS, nuclear technology, fracking, battery energy, and a lot more. Two-thirds of pharmaceuticals were developed and funded by the NIH, a government institution. So let's be clear. The government directly and indirectly creates value. Now, when I say something like this, right, that the government creates value, some people think I'm picking an ideological fight and they smell blood in the water and they go off on what the government's role is supposed to be and they start talking about ideology and theory. But I'm just stating facts. The government has and does literally create value. It's not an ideological turf war. It's literally a fact. So basically, why, why do people give a pass to corporate failures, but they don't give a pass to government failures? The government invested in both the failed Solyndra company and also the successful Tesla company. But you don't hear about how successful the government was in the EV revolution with Tesla. All you hear about is the failure of Solyndra, which was a disaster. I'm not saying it wasn't. The government fails and succeeds just like any other investor. The success of venture capitalism has to do with nothing more or less than happenstance and timing. National accounting, right? People who figure out GDP and stuff like that, they, they, they don't account for value government value, employment, and the profits that the government is responsible for. So it makes the government appear unproductive. And tons of private companies then capture and claim that value when all they're doing is rent sinking and concentrating wealth to shareholders.
right? That's the essence of this book. It's amazing. You should read it. It's called The Value of Everything by Mariana Masukatu. All right, that's all I got for today. Thanks for listening. Um, you can send me your thoughts to icudoctorecmo at gmail.com, icudoctorecmo, E-C-M-O, at gmail.com. I'm on TikTok, icudoctor is my handle. I'm on Instagram, icudoctortiktok. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review because um, it helps to spread it and then share it with people and talk about it if you would like it to grow. Um, my goal will always be to never have any advertising and to never get paid for this, which I currently don't, and I don't never plan on that. It's a public service that I enjoy doing. Um, so if you also like it and you want to support it, just talk about it. Thanks for listening, and uh, hopefully I have another episode soon. Thanks.